Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When I first announced that I was going to go through the little book of Zephaniah, I said that the subject of this book was the day of the Lord. Now, that's an expression that appears in the Old Testament, actually, quite a bit. Quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I pointed out that there are two books whose subject is the day of the Lord, and Zephaniah is one of them, and Joel is another. So that must be an important subject. But I also said that it's not just an important subject in the Old Testament, that it really is a very important subject when it comes to prophecy in the New Testament. Now, so far, we have uh, gone through two chapters of the three-chapter book And I have not talked about how the day of the Lord relates to the New Testament. What I'd like to do in this session is once again go to the book of Zephaniah and look at half of chapter 3, the first part of it at least. And then I'd like to at this point show why this is so important uh, pertaining to prophecy in the New Testament. This is really a, uh, an important issue, as I will point out after we get through this passage. But let me remind you, before we do, that the meaning of the phrase, the day of the Lord, is a period of time when God visits the earth in judgment. Now, there's more to it than that, which we'll get to before we get out of this book. But the primary meaning, the way it's used most of the time, is that it is a period of time when God visits the earth in judgment. Now, some of the prophecies in the Old Testament are saying that God is going to visit the earth uh, in Old Testament times and bring judgment. We've seen some of that on Judah and even the nations around Judah. But the uh, critical issue is that it is a period of time in which God judges. Now, that's what's critical. And so far, we've seen him talk about judging, visiting Judah to judge it, and visiting the nations around Judah to judge them. All of which leads me to suggest that a key component of this concept, Day of the Lord, is that he's going to pay a visit. I've heard preachers uh, talk about maybe the Lord would come and knock on your door and visit you at home. He'd visit you at the house. Uh, I, uh, you know, have heard of uh, perhaps the Lord, uh, preachers suggesting, what if the Lord came and visited the church? Uh, kind of thing. Actually, those two things happened in the ministry of Christ. I mean, remember Zacchaeus, uh, who was up in the tree and said, come down for this day, I'm going to go to your house. And in the book of Revelation, uh, he visits the seven churches of Asia Minor, all in modern-day Turkey. So the idea that the Lord would pay a visit on, say, somebody's house or a church is certainly an idea that's in the Scripture. I suggested uh, when I started this series in Zephaniah that um, the Lord, what if the Lord visited the UN, uh, which is the closest thing to I could think of to something of what happens in this book. But let me throw out one more suggestion. Let's suppose that the Lord visited, that's the idea behind the day of the Lord, visited not just a house or a church or a nation, 
But suppose he picked out a city. What would he say if he visited a city? Uh, I think the prior question might be, what city would he choose to visit? I've heard preachers say things like, if the Lord doesn't judge uh, San Francisco or some city like Las Vegas, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that's the idea of the Lord visiting a city in, in terms of judgment. Well, in going through Zephaniah, we have seen thus far that the Lord visited Judah, a nation. That he visited nations around Judah, northeast, south, and west. And in the very next paragraph, he talks about visiting a city and judging it. So with that in mind, turn to that little book of Zephaniah, and let's look at the day of the Lord where he visits a city in judgment. Now, actually, the little expression, day of the Lord, does not appear in the passage we're going to look at tonight. But that's the subject of the book, and it's clear that he is doing the very thing that phrase means. He's visiting the city, and he's judging it. So, let's read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, and the oppressor uh, and the oppressing city. She uh, has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. She, her princes in her midst are uh, roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone until morning. Her prophets are insolent, uh, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now all of that pertains to a city. He continues in uh, this passage in verse 5. And he says, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows, knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their fortress are devastated. I have made their streets desolate and none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitants. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling might not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they arose early and corrupted all their deeds. Now, this is a short passage, and it's about the Lord visiting a city, which is not named, but we'll get to that in a minute. The passage naturally falls into two parts. In the first four verses, he is clearly talking about the wickedness of this city. And then in the last part of the passage, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 7, he is talking about the righteousness of the Lord. And so you put these two parts together, and the part of this passage is, here is a wicked city, and here is a righteous judge who is going to judge that wicked city. That's what's going on. So, two parts to the passage. The first part, as I just said, is the wickedness of a city. It's not named, but piecing together things that are said in this passage as compared with things that are said in the rest of the book, everybody concludes that the city is Jerusalem. And what he does in these first uh, four verses is he talks about the people in the city in verses 1 and 2. 
He then talks about the leaders in the city. That's verse 3. The civic leaders. And then in verse 4, he talks about the religious leaders. So he's virtually covering the whole population of the city of Jerusalem, and he's breaking it down into those various groups. The people, the civic or political leaders, and the religious leaders. So what does he have to say? If he's going to judge this city, and he's going to judge these various groups, what does he say about them? Well, let's go back to verse 1. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. Now, at this point, he's describing the entire population of the city. As I mentioned, in verses 3 and 4, he's going to get to the leaders, but in these first two verses, he's talking about the population in general, the people. And he says um, that they are rebellious. Uh, That's an indictment against them, and as compared with verses in chapter 2, it's obvious he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. The Hebrew word translated rebellious means just that, rebellious, disobedient. By the way, um, I um, was struck by this very word a number of years ago. Uh, We think of unbelievers as being sinners, all of sin, and we call them sinners. And the idea is they miss the mark. Or we say we are disobedient. Rebellious is a pretty strong word. Seems to me that that's a a little more um, active, uh, a little more directed toward the Lord. And I remember going through some of the Psalms where it talks about that and concluding, you know what? the, the, as compared to rebellious, the word sinner is a little weak. All right, so you missed the mark. You know, even disobedience. Okay, you disobeyed that command. But you think of a, rebe- a rebel, and it's just a little stronger. It's more directed toward the Lord. You are rebelling against him. So that's his first accusation. You are a bunch of rebels. Wow. He then says you are polluted which simply means they are defiled. Their rebellion has gotten them into sin, and their sin has defiled them. But then he adds a third sin. He says they are oppressing. It's an oppressing city. So that some of these people were oppressing other parts of the population. Now, rebellion, it seems to me, is focusing on the Lord. Pollution, seems to me, is describing yourself, and oppressing is the way you treat other people. So it's an interesting little uh, way he analyzes this. Someone has said, rebels are those who refuse to submit to God's will. The defiled are those who are polluted by sinful practices. Tyrants disregard the rights of others, particularly those whom they take advantage of. So Jerusalem's sin in this verse is threefold. It's actively rebelling against God. It is inwardly defiled by sin. And it is outwardly cruel to other people. So it involves God, themselves personally, and their relationships with other people. She has wholly turned to evil. Now, I wonder if that might not just fit just about any city in America, especially Los Angeles. I picked on San Francisco and Las Vegas, but uh, we could throw in Los Angeles. And would that not be an apt description? We're in rebellion against God. This whole country, as a country, is in rebellion against God, city by city. And consequently, we are defiled and we mistreat other people. So he goes on to say in verse 2, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord and is not drawn near to her God. 
wow, uh, this really focuses on that relationship to the Lord. Uh, the people have not obeyed his voice. How about, by the way, what does that mean? Think about that for a second. Did God speak to them? How did God speak to them? Did they hear an audible voice? Uh, the, we're talking about the people now. Did God speak to them over a PA system so that they heard an audible voice? Did he have a radio broadcast or was he on TV? How did God speak to them? Through his word. So how many times does the Bible say, thus saith the Lord? They didn't hear that. Now the next phrase, uh, she has not received correction, is probably also the scripture, but probably also focusing on the prophets who came. That was the ministry of the prophets, was to correct them and warn them. So they didn't listen to the word, perhaps they didn't listen, well, they didn't listen to the prophets, and the ultimate result of that is they did not trust the Lord, and they didn't draw near to him. Man, you could almost uh, start with this verse and work backwards. Uh, the, 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 the ultimate issue is their relationship with the Lord. They didn't draw near to him. Uh, therefore, they didn't trust him. Therefore, they didn't obey him. And therefore, all this other stuff follows. They were rebels and defiled and mistreated other people. So I just think I was fascinated by these two verses as I looked at them again today and just thinking, boy, that just describes... Uh, cities today. I mean, that's as up to date as uh, today's newspaper, uh, today's radio uh, news broadcast. I mean, that, that's a good description of what goes on in cities in America. So he's saying Jerusalem at this time is one wicked city, and it's the people. But it's not limited to the people. It also includes the political leaders, the civic leaders. Look at verse 3. Her princess, now the word princess is used of leaders. That, uh, even earlier in the book it was used that way. The princess in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that have not left a bone until morning. Now, the first thing I want to point out is we're no longer talking about the people. It's clear in verses 1 and 2 that he's not specifying any particular group. Therefore, it's the whole population. It's the people. But when he gets to verse 3, he's focusing on the princes and the judges. Now, those would have been the civic leaders of Jerusalem at the time. And his accusation is that they have mistreated other people. Only this time he does it by using figures of speech, uh, analogies, pictures. So he says, the princes are roaring lions, lion roaring after its prey. And the judges are evening wolves, that's an interesting expression, that leave no bone until morning. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Well, the basic idea as a lion or a wolf attacks other animals or people, so these leaders were preying on the people of Jerusalem. Uh, so the rulers of Jerusalem, the princes, uh, were vicious lions. The judges of Jerusalem were vicious wolves, so that they gobbled up all the possessions of vulnerable people uh, as fast as they possibly could. Somebody said they were so greedy that nothing was left for the morning. 
And that's the idea. They were evening wolves, and they ate everything, and there was not so much as a bone left in the next, uh, in the next morning. So their leaders robbed the citizenry uh, in order to appease their own lust for power and plenty, in the words of one. So the um, leaders were corrupt. The leaders were corrupt because of their mistreatment of other people. They were like lions and wolves preying on people for their own personal satisfaction. Hmm. Would that describe some politicians today? And they, some people think this is history and history is boring. There's nothing new under the sun. Some of these descriptions are very, very applicable. All right, one more group in the city of Jerusalem. It's the religious leaders. The prophets, he says in verse 4, are insolent. Uh, that particular word means they were reckless. That's an interesting word to apply to a preacher or a prophet. They are, the, these prophets are treacherous people. Uh, they were reckless in the way they, uh, somebody has suggested, the way they announced their own advice as if it were divine revelation. They were treacherous in deceiving people into thinking that their words were authoritative. So the way they handled their job was, in essence, hurting the people uh, who uh, they should have been helping. So this is a condemnation of the prophets. Now, it was their job to preach the message of God, and instead of doing that, they were, well, according to this passage, uh, they were reckless and they were treacherous. Then uh, the priest get called in to question. The priest, it says, polluted the temple. Now, their job was to perform service in the temple. And instead of doing what they were supposed to do, they were doing something that polluted it. Uh, one author suggested, probably by their idolatry and their uh, astrology. If you remember back in chapter 1, they got accused of that. And this is probably a reference to that. Or they could um, have uh, done this by not offering uh, the proper sacrifices. Uh, some have suggested that they're supposed to offer sacrifices without spot or blemish, and they were not doing that. They were polluting the sanctuary uh, by offering uh, blemished animal sacrifices. But look at the last line in verse 4. They have done violence to the law. That's an interesting way to put it. They did not observe the law of holiness described by the Mosaic law. They perverted the law of Moses. Somebody has said until they filled their bulging purses. They did violence to the law by distorting its plain intent, meaning... Uh, and their plain, it's plain intent and meaning when they were teaching it. So, uh, by the way, this is, <laughs> if we we're going to apply this to today, we've just covered everybody. We've covered the people, we've covered the political leaders, and we've even covered the preachers. Now let me ask you a question. Do all the preachers get it right? Absolutely not. Now, that's not to be cynical against the clergy. It's to listen to them. They can't all be right because they're contradicting each other right and left. Uh, and they're preaching all kinds of things that do violence to the scripture. That's a good way to put it. They do violence to the word of God. So, <coughs> as we're going to see, the Lord judges that city. And he judges them because of the sins of the people, the leaders, 
and the priest. So the people, one word, rebellious. The leaders, the political leaders, well, they were lions and wolves. They were mistreating others. The prophets were mistreating the word of God. And the priests were doing violence to the word, to the law. So this is the wickedness that prompts God to judge. Now, by the way, this is uh, mild. Uh, other of the prophets in the Old Testament about this time talk about the idolatry that was going on and even child sacrifice. That in the idolatry, I mean, it was really, really bad. So Zephaniah is uh, touching the high spots, but this was really bad. Now, at this point, as I pointed out, what, the, what Zephaniah does is he moves from pronouncing the sins of the city, uh, the wickedness of Jerusalem, and he moves to the righteousness of the Lord. Now, um, this takes us to verses 5, 6, and 7 of Zephaniah chapter 3, but um, there's a little bit of a progression here. Uh, this is going to now focus on what the Lord is doing. So, it says in verse uh, 5, the Lord is righteous uh, in the midst. He will do uh, no unrighteousness. Now, to appreciate that, <coughs> excuse me, to appreciate that, you've got to see it in light of what he just said. You know? So in light of the unrighteousness of Jerusalem, the Lord is righteous, and he will not do anything unrighteous. Now tuck that away, that's important. He's not going to do anything unrighteous. As a matter of fact, verse 5 says, Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. So clearly the contrast is with the unrighteousness of Jerusalem versus the righteousness of the Lord. The injustice. Remember, I've talked about how they mistreated people. That's the injustice. Well, the Lord is not going to do that. Uh, he brings justice to light, and he never fails. They, in their sin, know no shame. The Lord doesn't have any sin that he has to be ashamed of. So, he is righteous, not unrighteous, uh, as were the leaders. And he never fails to bring justice to life every morning. Now, he just, he's just declaring the Lord is righteous. Now, look at verse 6. He says, I have cut off nations, their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate, and none pass by. Their elite are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitants. Now, a minute ago I said, verse 5 says, the Lord is righteous. Remember that. He does not do any injustice, right? Now, Keep that in mind as you read verse 6. So he will cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. In other words, this righteous judge is going to judge nations. That is what the day of the Lord is all about. That's what this book is about. So I have made their streets desolate. Uh, with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitants. So the Lord is reminding the people of Jerusalem, remember this is written to Jerusalem, that he has already destroyed other nations. So this um, is probably a reference to those nations around Jerusalem. Now in order to you got to remember the whole book. 
we started out talking about the day of the Lord, the day God visits to judge Judah. Then the next thing he did is he went around Palestine and talked about nations north, east, south, and west, so that he judges nations. Now, so when he comes to this, he's reminding them that he judged nations, and that's probably a reference to the nations mentioned in chapter 2. He's already used the Assyrians to attack the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria, and it fell in 722 B.C. So he is simply reminding them, hey, I've already judged nations. So God's judgments on other nations are probably given here as a warning to Jerusalem. So you got to put the passage together. He starts out saying, look, these people are unrighteous. They're wicked. And I just want to remind you, I judge nations. So, uh, This is a warning to them. Now, can you just imagine the people in Jerusalem thinking they're God's people and therefore they're in great shape? We have an Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and God God promised to bless us and we're in great shape. Can you just imagine that? And and the Lord comes along and says, you know, you need to look at what I did to the nations. You need to look at what I did to the northern kingdom. Don't be so proud and smug and arrogant. Uh, There's a case in the Gospels where a tower fell. And the people thought that tower fell uh, on those people and killed them because they were unrighteous. They were sinners. And Jesus says, you know, folks, you think that tower fell uh, and they died because they were wicked. I tell you, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So that may be a warning to you. And that's what's going on in this passage. God visits the city of Jerusalem to judge it, but he gave them a warning first. It's like driving down the freeway speeding and seeing the patrol car pull over somebody else. And that was a warning, and you slow down. That's the idea here. So he's saying, I just want you to know I judge the nations. One author has said, God acted in conformity with his righteousness by judging nations for their wickedness. Having uh, them uh, demolished, deserted, destroyed. A classic example for Judah would have been the ten northern tribes that were dispersed by Sargon II in Assyria in 722 B.C. End of quote. In other words, he's just pointing out what I said a minute ago, that uh, the Lord is saying, hey, nothing else, remember that one. And all the runs around you that are mentioned in chapter 2. Now, I've suggested that he's doing this to warn them. Well, he says that. Look at verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction, so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose exactly and corrupted all their deeds. He says, look, I'm telling you this to instruct you. I'm expecting the people of Jerusalem to learn from the judgment of the northern kingdom and the nations around her, that they would fear him so that they would not be destroyed. But, look at the last phrase of verse 7. They didn't get it. They didn't listen. So the Lord uh, gives us warnings in his word. Someone has said they were even more eager to produce produce their sinful uh, self-indulgence 
and to become thoroughly corrupt in their deeds. Great is the enticement of sin, and great is the penalty it incurs. But man rushes headlong into it nevertheless. And that's what's going on here. Another said, God pleaded with his people to follow his ways, accepting their correction. That's the point of this passage. In order to avoid being cut off and having to face punishment, instead of responding to the Lord's unceasing mercies, Judah consciously and purposely repudiated him and even were eager to continue in their corrupt ways. Complacency and rebellion led to the establishment of corruption. What a canon, a cameo, he says, of human history. So they didn't get it. God, who is righteous, judges He visits nations, he visits cities, he visits individuals, he judges wickedness. And he told them this, he illustrated this so they would get the message. And they did not learn. I had a conversation today with somebody and we were talking about something similar to this. Um, You ever heard the expression, you should learn from your mistakes? Is that a good idea? Let me give you a better idea. Learn from somebody else's mistakes. (laughs) Right? That's the point of the book of Proverbs. Uh, A wise man learns, and the fool doesn't. And, you know, there's the scoffer and the simpleton and a whole bunch of people named in the book of Proverbs. But one of the major points of the book of Proverbs is don't learn by your mistakes. Learn by somebody else's. That is exactly the point that's being made here. Don't learn by your mistakes. Learn by somebody else's. All right, I said at the beginning what I was going to do was explain this passage and then talk about the day of the Lord because that's the subject of the book and this is but one illustration of it. Uh, The day of the Lord visiting uh, in judgment. So let me sum up this passage and then talk about the day of the Lord. The Lord exposes Jerusalem's sin and explains his righteousness so that they would obey him and avoid being destroyed. But they continued to follow a course of corruption. That's the point of this passage. Now, there are all kinds of things we could say. The civic leaders were caught in corruption, but those who have yet to be caught did not learn. The religious leaders were caught in corruption, but those who had not yet been caught did not learn. The people were caught in corruption, but those who had not yet been caught did not learn. So, That's the immediate point of this passage. But I keep promising that this has to do with the New Testament. So how would you like for me to show you why this is so important to understanding the day of the Lord and prophecy in the New Testament? Interested? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to read a very well-known, familiar passage of Scripture. All right. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You there? Verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now what's going on is Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, he led people to Christ, he formed a church, and he left. 
he told them that the Lord was coming back. But after he left, some people died here called falling asleep. And the people were concerned that they were going to miss the Lord coming back. So they wrote him, and he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to sorrow like others who have no hope. Look at verse 14. Uh, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. When the Lord comes back, he's going to take those who uh, are dead with him. That is, he's going to resurrect their bodies. They're already with him personally. Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. By the way, when he says by the word of the Lord, he means I got this from the Lord. Uh, The Lord didn't say this when he was here. I got a word from the Lord. He was an apostle. He can do that. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What does he mean by that? Precede them. Uh, You know, and the idea was the fear is we're going to go and they're going to be left in the grave. Their bodies aren't, you know. And he says, no, we're not going to precede them. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Ah, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So those Christians who died and they're in the grave, they're not going to precede us. We're not going to precede them, I mean. They're going to be raised first. Now, why is that? Some sarcastic preacher said, because they had six feet further to go. (laughs) Then we who are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, what what did I just read to you? What's this called? The The rapture. The word rapture does not appear in the Bible. Neither does the word trinity. These are words that we have adopted to describe what is in the Bible. Rapture just means caught up. It's a Latin word, caught up. So we're going to be caught up, and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first, and then together, what a beautiful picture. We're going to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's called the rapture. Do you believe in the rapture? You have no choice. If you believe the Bible, you must believe the rapture, right? I don't know how you deny this. That's not the problem. Let me ask you a question. When is it going to take place? That's the problem. This is a highly debated subject, and there are several possibilities. One is that it's going to happen before the tribulation. It's called pre-trib rapture. The second possibility is that it's going to happen after the tribulation. That's called post-trib rapture. This is real tough stuff, isn't it? Pre-post. And then there are people who say it's going to happen somewhere in between. There are some that's going to say it's mid, and there's a new view out in the last 20 years called pre-wrath, that's three quarters. Uh, some of those are saying it's mid, but uh, those, are, those basically are the options. Uh, before, during, or after the tribulation. Now, which view are you? Is that wishful thinking? You hope so? You're pre-trib? You ever talk to a post-tribber? Suppose I could treat, uh, prove post-trib to you. I mean, what I want to know is, when is that going to take place? And he didn't tell us, right? Not so fast. You recall that these verse divisions were put in there by Paul? No. Nope. Neither were the chapter divisions, right? So don't stop at verse 18. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times, oh good, he's going to get to the time. That's what I want to know. Concerning the time, the times, and the seasons, brethren, you don't have any need that I should write to you. What? What? What do you mean? 
That's the very thing I want to know. And you say they already know it, so I don't have to tell you. Oh, well, why don't you have to tell them? Verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Oh, he taught them about the day of the Lord. So he says, look, you don't need for me to tell you the time of the rapture because I, when I was there, I, I told you all that when I taught you about the day of the Lord. Now, all of a sudden, we have to decide of the definition of the day of the Lord. You see why this is so important? Well, it's a day. It happens in a day, right? So it's the second coming. And therefore, this is a post-trib rapture. If the Lord comes back um, at the day, a single day of the Lord, then that's got to be post-trib, second coming. Some of you look concerned. Now, I have labored the fact that the day of the Lord is an Old Testament expression. If you do not understand the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you will mess up this passage big time. Now, how did I define and describe the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? It is a period of time when the Lord will visit the earth to judge the earth. So if the day of the Lord is a single day, then this is referring to post-trib rapture. If it's referring to a period of time, then it's referring to the whole tribulation period. And keep reading. Read verse 3. He says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them uh, as uh, labor pains does an expecting woman. Now what is important, he says, all right, here's the picture. There's going to be peace and safety, and bam, the day of the Lord's going to start. So I don't have to tell you about all that because you already know the day of the Lord, it's like, a woman, and just bam, the labor pains start. But just before that, she was in great shape enjoying dinner, peace and safety. Now, before I go any further, do you remember the Lord in Matthew 24 saying that, uh, that, that the tribulation was going to be so bad that those days weren't short and the whole earth would be destroyed? Remember that? So let me ask you a question. Is there going to be peace and safety before the second coming? No. Read the book of Revelation. Ah. So he is not describing a single day. If you say that, you don't understand the expression day of the Lord in the Old Testament. He is saying the day of the Lord is the tribulation. And when that thing, before it starts, there's going to be peace and safety. And then, bam. The tribulation is going to start. I keep reading. There's more to come. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, that word means deliverance, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he is calling the day of the Lord wrath. And the Bible calls the tribulation wrath in Revelation chapter 6 in the seal judgments. And then there are the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And it's called the day of wrath. So the tribulation is the day of wrath. And we get delivered from it. You get the picture? So here are the sequence of events. There's going to be peace and safety. 
then there's going to be the rapture. How'd you get that? Because we're delivered. And then, bam, there's going to be the tribulation starting suddenly, and it's going to be total destruction. So, it is imperative that you understand the day of the Lord is a period of time when God visits the earth to judge it. And, according to Paul, the day of the Lord isn't finished. It's still coming. So the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament of a period of time when God judges a nation, and it didn't all happen in a day. Judges nations, and it didn't all happen in a day. Judge Jerusalem, and it didn't all happen in a day. So it's not a single day. It's a period of time, and it is a period of time when God comes to judge the earth, and I have great news for you. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you get delivered from it, and I've got a word from the Lord on that. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Amen? 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 Amen. And amen. So is it important that you understand the book of Zephaniah? Oh, yeah. And Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes and the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation and the book of 1 Thessalonians. We need to understand the scripture so that we not be misled. Father, thank you for your promise that we are delivered from the wrath to come. Help us to walk accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.